Title of the message, His House Blesses My House. Now, we're in a, we're in a, a, a passage, uh, if you look on the screen, Ephesians 5, 17 to 21. Only five verses. If you got a paper Bible, your iPhone Bible, you can swipe up and you can just turn the page or whatever, and you can see what comes after verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. Mm-hmm. Oh, a lady right over here just found it. Okay, yeah. The, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Every lady's favorite Bible verse. I actually have a mug in my office. It has that verse on the mug. Because I believe in the Bible. <laughs> then a little bit later, it's going to say, husbands, what? Love your wives. And then it's going to talk about children, obey your parents. And then it's going to talk about fathers don't exasperate or uh, don't provoke your children to anger, but, but raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Then it's going to say, you know, employers don't mistreat your employees. And employees work hard even when they're not looking. Like all, all these things that apply to our regular lives. The house. God's a big fan of the house. The family. Mom, dad, children who listen to their parents and obey their parents, right? Next week, we will get into that. Husbands, bring your wives. This is the one you've been waiting for. <laughs> Nobody's coming next week. <laughs> I just cut our audience by 30% right there. All right, anyway. Uh, before we get to that, we got to talk about what comes up, and I think Paul does this strategically in Ephesians 5, 70 to 21, because he, he's going to build the case before we get to the house, your house, let's talk about God's house, because his house has the ability to bless your house. And why you want to be connected to his house is because there's goodness to be found in the house of God, that if you get invested in the house of God, I'm a firm believer in this, if you get invested in the house of God, God gets invested in your house. I believe that with all of my heart. My life is a testimony to that fact. My whole life has been in the church. I told you this, that my church, the first church I was a part of, was started in my parents' basement. My parents' basement, people would show up Tuesday night for Bible study, and I'd be naked dancing on the dresser. I still run into people to this day, run into people, I remember when you were naked on the dresser. I'm like, please spare me. And, and, and I was raised in that church, and then I, I found my, my lifelong friends in the church, and uh, church was everything. Back in those days, we went to church three times a week. Never mind this once. You guys got it easy. It was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Bible study Wednesday night, sometimes prayer meeting on Friday night. While all the pagans were partying, we'd be praying. Right? My whole life in the, in the church. I met my wife in a church basement. Yeah, where all the naughty kids would make out during the potluck summers. <laughs> Not me and my wife, though. We were holy. Hallelujah. I got my kids uh, dedicated in the church. I got two of my children out of three baptized in the church. My best friends are in the church. I'm telling you, you put your life in the house of God, and he puts his life in your house at home. Some of you need this message because your house at home is filled with all kinds of angst, anger, frustration. There's no blessing there. It's a curse. I'm going to tell you something. If you pay attention today, you lean in and listen to this, God's going to start doing a work in you, wherein by you investing in his house, he's going to turn and flip the script in your house and give you a blessing in your house. I believe this with all my heart. I believe with all my heart. Put God first. Joshua chapter 21. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what? I have found in my life the people that are the most blessed, the most successful are the people who put God's house first. We, we, we've got business owners in this church, millionaires in this church, Blessed, prosperous. They tithe, they serve, they give, then they come to church, they worship God on Sunday. We've got people in this church, every person I've ever met that's successful in this church. With, and I'm not talking just about financial success. I'm talking about home success. Because that's really what we want. We want a home 
that's a refuge from all the crazy in the storm of this world. And I'm telling you something, the people that have that, the people that have that are the people that give themselves to his house. That's what Ephesians 5, 17 to 21 is. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as we get into this text. Here's what he says. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then note verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So when he says addressing one another, he's talking to a church, by the way. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Obviously, in order to address one another, we have to be around one another. So I'm only pointing that out to say he's talking to the church gathering here. So many times we take the Bible, we make it an individual enterprise, me and God. So many times people say, this is my handbook for life. No, 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 no. This is not written to an individual. It's written to a people. It's written to a group, the church, Jesus. Jesus' people. So addressing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, submitting to, there's another word again, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts. Renew our minds, transform us. We, we take this moment right now and we say pause on the noise, the noise of the world, what we have to worry about coming up, what we're regretful about, what came before. We just say pause and speak to your people and help us all to see Jesus. Him and him only in his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Have a seat. So um, I was thinking about this, this season that we're in. It's, we're a week away from Halloween. A anybody a Halloween fan? <laughs> One of the questions you just don't ask church people. Because <laughs> everybody's in this. Uh, I am, but I don't want to say anything. I'm a Halloween fan, I'll tell you that. I'm a big fan of candy. Not the ghouls and the ghosts and all that nonsense. I like candy. I like my kids getting candy that I didn't pay for. Amen, somebody. <laughs> I'm all for that. Can we have Halloween on a regular basis, please, right? Uh, you know, Halloween 2021 is going to be a real test kitchen for post-COVID living. I really think about this because you think about it, All the holidays had it bad during COVID, but Halloween really took it on the chin. Because this is the one ho holiday where we do everything anti-COVID, except wearing masks. We're pro <laughs> like, so it's the, it's the anti-COVID Halloween because it's the one holiday, uh, anti-COVID holiday, because it's the one holiday where we tell our kids to get out of the house, not locked down, get out, go visit strangers' houses, Okay, so that's not just, you know, your four selected friends that are all got the vaccine or got their negative test, right? Go visit strangers' houses and ask them for free stuff. Bring it back to our house and eat it. <laughs> this is the only holiday that encourages anti-COVID behavior. So I'm thinking about if we get through this year, if... Halloween happens and there's no uptick in cases and deaths and all that kind of stuff, then the, the dreaded numbers don't go up. Well, we might be coming out of the woods here. And I was thinking about maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're back in church for the first time. And, and you're wondering, is this the right church? Or you're, you're looking for a church. And every week we find this out, even now. We, we have been open almost a year, right? Have we been open a year? Over a year? We've been open over a year. Man, I didn't realize it was that long. We've been open since May 24, 2020. And uh, even now, people are coming back for the first time. So I'm wondering who's here today, and this, this is your nod to God, like final nod to God, or one more chance, God, or you're exploring the church or Christianity or, or whatever, and this is your first time, and we're so glad. And the question is, though, have you found the right church? And the answer is yes. I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. The outline of Ephesians 5, I want, to write, I want you to write down. Uh, Ephesians 5, 17 to 21. I don't, actually, you don't have to write this down. It's on the screen. It's on your notes there. The priorities of the church gathering, that's what he's talking about. So when he says he's talking about 
Understand the will of the Lord. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another. Submit to one another. The priorities of the church gathering. And then he flows then, and skip ahead if you want to in your Bibles, Ephesians 5.22, where he talks about how the home is supposed to operate. But I believe that he intentionally, Paul the Apostle, writing to the Ephesians, intentionally says this is what the church should look like that will bless your house. Got it? This is what a good church looks like that will bless your house. So write this down. Now this I know you have to write down. Participating in a life-giving church produces a life-giving home. If you participate in a life-giving church, you will, you will see God go to work in your home. And I, like I said, I've been raised in the church my whole life, and I, and I know the, the church inside and out. I'm in a, I've been around. I've been to some bad churches. That church that was started in my parents' basement, that was a dysfunctional church, ladies and gentlemen. That was a hideous church. We had pastors doing unthinkable things. One pastor after another after another. My parents to this day say it is an act of God that you are even in the church, never mind pastoring a church. And I think, well, I think what God did was he paraded all the ways not to do it so that I would say, okay, I'm not doing that. So I could do it the way God wants to do it. And you think about churches that you may have gone to before. And when I was a senior in Bible college, I was leaving Bible college, I was going into the workforce. And I was thinking, I want to just explore what the church looks like because I've been in school for four years. And sometimes school can, you know, it can inoculate, inoculate you from the real world. And so I... Um, I, I went out to all these churches. Every week I went to a different church. I went to a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, a, 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 a Catholic church. Every week I was going to a different church gathering, and they all had one thing in common. They were all boring. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. The boring. Anybody ever been to a boring church? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And what frustrates me about a boring church is a church that's boring is disconnected from the message of the church. Because people will go to a football game. This is so amazing. People go to a football game. They will go to uh, the Tampa Bay Bucks if they want to see their team win. They'll go to the Patriots if they want to see their team lose. And they'll go. <laughs> no one's coming back. No one's coming back next week. This is over now. I, I offended the women and the Patriots fans. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Lord have mercy, Jesus is going to have to do a work this week to get you back. Okay, anyway, sometimes you will go to a Bucks game and you will, or a Patriots game and you will cheer for three hours and they might lose. Right? You ever sit down and watch a football game? They lose and you're like, I wasted three hours for that. People will pay money, they will buy tickets, they will pay for parking, they will pay for hot dogs, they will pay $17 for a hot dog. Could buy a, 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 a African village hot dogs for a year for that. And they will go and they will root and they will cheer and they will scream and they will sing and they might lose. And there's more excitement over a football team that might lose in the stadiums of sports in this world than there are in the churches that believe in a Savior who did not lose. A Savior who won. A Savior who conquered sin, hell, and the grave. A life-giving church is a church that's connected in their atmosphere to the reality of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He conquered death. That's why churches should never be boring. They should, always, they should be exciting. I'm not saying they always have to be, all the time. But I am saying we should be happy to be here, joyful to be here, excited to be here, because we know that the, that the Lord we serve is alive forevermore, and he's coming back. Am I talking to anybody who knows you've been going through something? You've been going through something and you don't know how you're going to get out. And you're going through a valley. The Bible says, though I go through the valley, the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. And afterward I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter what happens necessarily here. I know my home is in heaven forever. i got something to be excited about. And what frustrates me is when a church doesn't have, doesn't have joy. And the reason why is because they get disconnected from the gospel. They get disconnected from the truth of Jesus. And we never want that. 
So what does a good church gathering look like? Since you might be finally making your way back to normalcy, might be coming out of the COVID coma and into real life, pick a church that'll pour life into you. Amen? Amen. And if you're here shopping for churches, I just want to let you know, shopping's over. Three signs, number one. Three signs, number one. A gathering that calls you to follow God's will, not the world's ways. You want a church that will give it to you straight. Because every person on this planet is sick with sin. If you ever find a church that doesn't open the Bible, doesn't read the Bible, run like hell. Because they're just going to bring you there anyway. I don't tell you what is popular with the world. It's my job to tell you what's true with God. It is my job to offend. I've said this many times during this series. It is my job to upend your predilections, your preconceived notions. It's my job to question your political affiliations. I want to offend Republicans and Democrats. I think I, a good Sunday is when both Republicans and Democrats are offended. Amen. And then our church, people come from Pentecostal backgrounds. They come from Baptist, non, really it's Pentecostal or charismatic and non-Pentecostal charismatic. And I love the fact that some people, and I've heard this, the Baptists or the non-charismatics think we're too charismatics and the charismatics think we're too Baptists. I like that. Because that means we're ticking everybody off. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> a, a, a good church, what I'm trying to tell you is a good church doesn't cater to what you want to hear. A good church tells you what you need to hear. And the world's ways will never match up what I say from this pulpit. They will never match up. I, I, if it does, something's wrong. And Paul says this uh, to the Ephesians. Look in verse 15, 17. He says, therefore do not be foolish. Implication. Listen, the implication is that in that church in Ephesus, in the first century, to whom Paul is writing, there was a bunch of people who were foolish. Think about that. He wouldn't say, don't be foolish, if they aren't foolish. So how did they get foolish? Well, let me tell you how. Ephesus was a city, or is still, is a relic of what it was back then, but it was a city in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey, it was a burgeoning metropolis. It was huge. It was enormous. It was flooded with people, flooded with idolatry, temples, pagan revelry, parties, drunkenness, everything. Just like every city in the modern world is. You went to the city to glorify yourself. This is what the scriptures teach about the city. Let me just do a little bit of an unpacking of the city in the ancient world. Um, every time the Bible mentions a city, it talks about human sin and corruption. It really does. Now, it's not to say that cities are bad. It's just to say that where you have cities, you have more what? People. And the Bible is very clear that people are sinners. So what you have in every city is more sinners per square foot than anywhere else. And wherever you have more sinners per square foot, you have more opportunity for more sin, more corruption, more foolishness. Foolishness. So there's, a, there's this passage in Genesis 4 where Cain kills Abel. Cain come, God comes to Cain and says, what'd you do? He said, I'm not my brother's keeper. He says, your, blood's, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You killed your brother, didn't you? And he said, I'm going to put a mark on you, and I'm going to cast you away from my presence. And the Bible says the very first thing that Cain does when he leaves the presence of God is he builds a city. City, the picture that Scripture gives us of the city is it is rebellion. It is rejection of the presence of God because we want the presence of more people. And uh, then there's another city, it's called Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, the people after the flood come together. Now God's first command was to spread out and fill the earth. But every time you see people building a city, it's the anti-God way. It's the anti-fill the earth. No, we want to gather together. And then verse, uh, chapter 11 of Genesis, look what it says. It says, now the whole earth was one language and, and had the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to another, come let us make bricks. That's called uh, industry, that's called mass production. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a what? City. 
and a tower with his top in the heavens, and let us make a what? Name for ourselves. In other words, let me go to the city to make a name for myself. In many respects, the cities are the ultimate idolatry of human hearts because we go to the city to glorify ourselves. That's what people go to the Big Apple for. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of, right? You know what I'm saying? So you got this, this I'm going to go to this, I'm going to make a name of myself so I can be a great person. God comes down and scatters their language and confuses them so that they can go and spread out and fill the earth. Here's the point. The point is, don't be fooled by the city. Be filled with the third person of the Trinity. Write that down. Do not be filled by the city. So cities also have a lot of good to offer us, but there's a lot of foolishness. And just in case you're wondering, God regularly sends his prophets into the cities to save them. He wants to save the people from the city. We don't curse the city. No, 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 no. We work in the city to bring the gospel to the city. But understand that wherever you have a lot of people, you have a lot of sin, and a lot of sin leads to a lot of foolishness. In fact, I think what happened with COVID, to be honest with you, I think what happened with COVID, because the city's got it worse than the suburbs. I mean, people, you were locked down in maybe a three or four bedroom house. There were people in the city that were locked down in a one bedroom loft for three months, and they left the city. The, the cities have lost populations. I think what's happened, actually, is God has Tower of Babel us again. He's scattered the people from the cities. Now you see in, the, in our country rising crime, poor education, greater income inequality. Where's that all happening? In the cities. Because the cities provide us with foolishness. Not anti-city, I'm just telling you, don't be fooled by it. There's the allure of our culture. This is where I'm getting to. There's the allure of our world. Young people, listen to me. I'm going to go to the city. I'm going to be a neighbor. I'm going to become great. I'm going to be da, 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 da. Okay, yeah, there's that allure. But what you're not seeing as what happens with everything the devil gives us is bait and switch. It's bait and switch. Yeah, come. I'll make a name for you, and I'll eat you alive at the same time. Story after story after story you can find about that. So what a church does is a church stands as a testimony to truth in an age of lies, tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, and rescues you spiritually, maybe physically, but spiritually from the city, the corruption. Know what the will of the Lord is. You know what Paul the Apostle says to the Corinthians? He says, I want you to pray for me. This is Paul the Apostle. Listen to this. This is so powerful. He says, I want you to pray for me. And you would think, well, what would Paul need prayer for? Is he sick? Uh, is he devastated? Did he go through a hard time? No, no, he says, I want you to pray that I will have the right words to say to God's people. One of the best things that you can do for me is pray that prayer. I want you to pray for me, your pastor. Think about Paul the Apostle. He never was without words. He wrote one-third of the New Testament, for heaven's sakes. But he asked God, he asked the people that he ministered to, pray for me that I will tell you what God wants me to tell you. In fact, one of our worship leaders this weekend texted me. He said, Pastor Tim, I'm going to pray for you tonight. Tell me what to pray for. I'm like, wow. And I wrote back, I said, pray that I'll have boldness to say what God wants to say. That's my prayer. That's what I need. I need you to pray. Don't criticize your pastor. Pray. Right? And, and you pray, and this is good for you, you pray that he will say things that you may not want to hear. Because where else are you going to get it? This world is based on catering to you. Because everybody's trying to sell you stuff. Now you notice that we did not charge you admission today. You didn't pay for parking. You pay for $40 up there in the Patriots land, but you don't pay here. Because we're not trying to sell something to you. We're trying to bring you to the one who gave his life for you. It's free. It's offered free of charge. So I got no dog in the hunt for your money. God is here to speak to you. And he might have something to say to you that you don't want. He's going to fill you with the will of the Lord, not the ways of the world. Number two. A good church gathering is a gathering that continually seeks the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
You want a church that encourages you to be filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled. Which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery, or that's wastefulness, another translation says. But be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit, capital S, means the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, wants to live inside of you and be fully inside. He wants to fill your life with himself. A couple points about this text. The words, be filled with the Spirit, are in the present perfect in the Greek, which means that he's literally saying, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not a one and done. It's not, it's not you got filled with the Holy Spirit sometime in the past, and then you that's it now, I filled up my tank. I mean, if, think about it, if you did that with your car. I filled up my tank back in 1998, Pastor, I'm all set. You wouldn't get very far, would you? You need to go back to the gas station. What are you doing today? You're getting back to the gas station, the spiritual gas station. Getting God to fill you with his word, with his spirit. We pray for it regularly. We'll do it at the end of this message too. Pray for you to receive the spirit and to be, keep on being filled. Now you think about what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? It means, it means to let the spirit have control. What are you filled with right now? What is filling you? I guarantee you whatever is filling you is causing you to act in certain ways that might not be good for you. Some of you are filled with anxiety, and it's controlling you, and you can't sleep at night because you're filled with anxiety. Well, the devil's handing you all those things to worry about, and you need to know that the Lord is your shepherd. You don't need to want. He will guide you. He will make you lie down at green pastures. He will restore your soul. Some of you are filled with anger, and anger controls you, and you lash out at everybody. You got into road rage this week. You almost got into an accident this week because you're filled with anger. Whatever you're filled with will control you. Some of you are filled with lust. What a baptism testimony we just heard to get to, to see God break us free from that fullness. Some of you are filled with pride. No one can talk to you. No one can tell you anything because you know everything. You're so smart. You're filled with those. It controls you. Whatever is controlling you is what you're filled with. Here's what the Bible is telling you. Stop letting that fill you and start letting the Holy Spirit fill you. So in, 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 in Ephesus, first century church, Ephesus, first century city in Ephesus, like I said, they had temples to pagan gods. One of the gods that they worshipped in Ephesus was called Dionysus. We're going to put a picture of him on the screen here. That's Dionysus. Uh, we'll put the full screen in just a moment. Dionysus, who suffered from a lack of appendage, but he also... <laughs> Some of you missed that one. All right. He was the god of wine. He was the Greek god of wine. So what they would do was to worship Dionysus is they would do self-serving things to worship Dionysus. They would have wine parties. They would have, they would have a kegger. First century kegger. They didn't have beer, but they had wine. So they would drink all this wine, and they believed. Listen, they, they believed that when they drank wine, they were filling their bodies with Dionysus. Dionysus wasn't just the god of wine. He would actually inhabit their bodies. Isn't that crazy? Secondly, they also believed that if they received Dionysus by drinking the wine, that Dionysus would help them control up uh, communicate with the spirit realm. Now you think about this. They thought if we drink wine, Dionysus comes into our bodies and he will help us communicate with the unseen realm. Friends, those are the promises that God offers you in the Holy Spirit. That when you receive the Holy Spirit, God, the real God, fills your body and then communicates with you Concerning the unseen realm. That's what he's saying. So be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the whole. What Dionysus offers you, only Christ can deliver to you. Isn't that good? So it's kind of amazing how these things line up. Because here's what the Holy Spirit does. Write this down. The Holy Spirit brings joy. The Holy Spirit does for you what wine only promises you. And when I say wine, it's, wine is like Halloween in church. I could say, anybody a fan of wine? And I'll be like, I am, but I'm not saying anything. Okay, all right. Because the Bible, believe it or not, goes both ways on wine. It does. There are passages that say, have some wine, and there are passages that talk about wine as a mocker. 
And there are passages that really demonize wine. And there are passages that encourage wine. And yes, Pentecostals and Baptists, Jesus turned water into literal wine. Pentecostals and Baptists. <laughs> they like to say it was grape juice. No! It was wine, yeah. The point is, wine offers you something. What does it offer you? Boldness, right? Joy, joy. Let's start with joy first. Joy. You get off work, you go to the bar. Not that I would know. You go to the bar, have a couple of drinks. Suddenly you're like, eh. I guess my day wasn't so bad after all. And if you're single, you have a couple more drinks and you're like, hello, hello, hello. And what is your name, lovely lady? And she's like, get lost, creep. No, you know what I'm saying? Boldness. But then what happens is wine will offer you those things temporarily and leave you with regret. Countless people addicted to alcohol, in Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to get free from this false idol that can't deliver. Well, the Holy Spirit does deliver. This is why on the day of Pentecost when they receive the Holy Spirit, the people say they're drunk. Because the initial signs of the Holy Spirit and the initial signs of wine are the same. Joy, boldness. But the back nine of wine is dereliction and regret. And the back nine of the Holy Ghost is transformation, life change, and good future. Got it? So it fills you with joy. For Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than when they have grain and wine abounding. Number, th number two, the Holy Spirit lives in God's people. Just, just like the Ephesians believed that Dionysus would live in them if they drank the wine. If you drink the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot know. It doesn't know him. It doesn't see, receive him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be, last two words, everybody, in you. The Holy Spirit wants to take up residence in your body. I want you to think about the Holy Spirit as a person. That's why Jesus always used uh, male pronouns. He's a, another comforter. He, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is my favorite part about the Holy Spirit living in you. Are you ready? Write this down. Number three, the Holy Spirit speaks to us from beyond this life. What they believed about Dionysus, that he could help them communicate with the underworld or the, or the uh, unseen world, actually the Holy Spirit's the one that does that. The Holy Spirit can tell you what's to come. Look what it says in John 14, 17. What does he say? He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the what? The things that are to come. The Holy Spirit can warn you about the future. The Holy Spirit can set you up for a better day ahead. But you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can warn you, young ladies, about the guy who's hitting on you. You're gonna say, uh, no, not that one. Turn and walk away. But he's really handsome. He's the son of the devil. Get away, get away. <laughs> the Holy Spirit can warn you about the house you shouldn't buy, about the job you shouldn't take, about the friend you shouldn't make. That's what the Holy, the Holy Spirit is there to guide you. I thought to think about that. How many people look for direction, 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 direction? They're on, they're on the internet. They're Googling, how do I, how do I, whatever. I don't know, where do I go? You go to the Holy Spirit. He's far more knowledgeable, wise, and true than any search engine on this earth. Now, when it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit, our church gets this question a lot, especially in our Florida location. We get this a lot. Is Waters Church spirit-filled? And what they mean when they ask us that question is one of two things. Is Waters Church spirit-filled? They mean, do you encourage or allow speaking in tongues? That's really what the question is. I wish they would just ask that question because the question is loaded. And, and the, second question, the second thing that they're looking for is, uh, will I, if I come to your church, have a Holy Spirit heebie-jeebie moment. Holy Spirit goosebump moment during your worship. That's what they mean. That's really what they mean. So we make so much of these two things concerning being Spirit-filled. Tongues and feeling the Spirit. Well, okay, I got no problem with that. By the way, I speak in tongues. 
The scripture says don't forbid people to speak in tongues. Some of you don't speak in tongues. Some of you want to run from tongues. Can I tell you, I don't care where you are in that. Because there are many, many passages in the Bible where the Holy Spirit fills God's people and they don't speak in tongues. But something else happens. And I'm going to lead you in a test to ask your question, a question of you. Am I spirit-filled? And it has nothing to do with tongues. But it has everything to do with living a life that you can look back on and say, amen, God was good. So example number one, filled with the Spirit to face and resist temptation. God's Holy Spirit wants to come into your life so that you can face and resist temptation. You can start to beat back the demons that have beaten you down. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized by John. He comes out of the water, and immediately the Scripture says the heavens open, and he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus and rest on him. And then it says this, And a voice came from heaven saying, Behold, this is my Son, in whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then verse 1 of Matthew 4, look, then, somebody say then. Then, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was Spirit-filled, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. And every time he was tempted, he resisted, and he spoke, thus saith the word, the word of the Lord. It is written, and every time the devil was like, hey Jesus was like, hey That's what the spirit fullness looks like. When you can say to that temptation, in Jesus' name, the Lord rebuke you. I'm walking with my Savior. Get out of my life. So are, are you spirit-filled? Question, example number two. Filled to serve the church. Now the rubber's really going to hit the road with all the tongue speakers. I just want to speak in tongues. I get it. And it's a wonderful gift. And I don't mock it. I appreciate it. But, you know, the Bible says that there's a place for it. There's times when you just don't do it. Like on Sunday morning when new people will show up for the first time and everybody's going, Hyundai, who stole my Toyota? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Everybody doing that. And the, and the new person's going to be like, what the heck? <laughs> right? So, so you know what I'm saying? There's moments not to do it for the sake of people who are strange to the church. Do you know what that's called? That's called making worship not about you. And anybody who tells me, well, I just can't control it. You know, when the Holy Spirit comes out, I just can't. It just comes out. And that's not even biblical because the Bible says that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. You cannot be overwhelmed with the spirit to such a case that you turn into a lunatic. And some of you say, I've met some spirit-filled Christians. They are weird. Let me just tell you. They were weird before the Holy Spirit. Now they're just Christian weird. That's all that happened. If you met them before Jesus, they would have freaked you out a different way. <laughs> so let's get back to the point. Filled to serve the church. Acts chapter 6, there's a disagreement with the church. The, Jew, the, um, the, the Greek widows are being neglected in the distribution of food. And the apostles, it says, the 12 summoned the number of disciples and it says, it's not right that we should stop preaching to, to do this duty. This is a... This is a task that anybody can do. And then they said this, verse 3 says, Therefore pick out from among you seven men of good, rep good reputation, full of the Spirit. And we will give them this, what's the last word? Duty. duty. What's duty? Duty is something that you do regularly. So duty is something that you do that you may not want to do, but you do it for the sake of others. Amen. Notice the qualifier was, we need people who serve. And we want the people who serve to be filled with the Spirit. So don't tell me about tongues and Holy Spirit goosebumps if that's all you care about and you can't pick up a mop and sweep or clean or check in kids or help us out in the parking ministry or do something on, you know, during the week where you serve others. That's 
A sign of being filled with the Spirit. Number three, filled to boldly proclaim the gospel. Here's another sign that you're filled with. You're bold in talking about Jesus. It just comes out of you. Now you're not chapter and verse in people. You know how you talk about Jesus at work? Some of you got to get this. The easiest way to talk about Jesus is to wait till you're asked because you're not there to preach, you're there to work. And when they ask you about, well, what's going on with you? Oh, man, church was amazing this week. That's, there you go. Oh, church, really? I've been to church. It's boring. Yeah, right? okay. yeah my, my, my church. And then you start talking. This is what my church does. What are you doing? Tonight? I'm going to my church's life group. That, see how natural it is? You don't have to go and, hey, thus saith the Lord in Isaiah 38, verse 24. <laughs> you don't do that. Filled to boldly proclaim the gospel, that the Holy Spirit will fill you to be just, you know, confident in talking about Jesus. In, in Acts chapter 4, the, the apostles, Acts chapter 3, the apostles preached, they arrest them. Acts chapter 4, they threaten them, they say, No more speaking in Jesus' name. No more. So the apostles, Peter and John, they come back to the church and they say, Guys, they arrested us. And then they threatened us, and they said we shouldn't preach in Jesus' name anymore. What should we do? And the Bible says that they prayed not for protection. They didn't say, oh, let's avoid the world now. Let's go on lockdown. Let's hide and shelter in place. No. They prayed for more boldness. They said, oh, wait a second. You, you mean that the government, you mean to tell me that the government told us we can't gather and preach anymore? Let's pray that we'll gather and preach even louder because the government's not God. God is God. Half of you are clapping. I know which side you're on. Okay, anyway. It says, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was filled, and they were shaken, they were shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they what? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's being spirit-filled. Number four, filled to give up your life for God's plan. Or filled to surrender your plans for his plans. Rubber's hitting the road now. You want to talk about being spirit-filled? It begins when you surrender your plans to God's plans. Acts chapter 7, verse 55 is when Stephen is being stoned. He's being stoned by those who hate him. He's preached Jesus, and the people have rocks in their hands, and they're about to throw him. And the scripture says in chapter, chapter 7, verse 55, says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And verse 60 says, and falling to his knees, as they're stoning him, as they are literally killing him, falling to his knees, he cried out, verse 60, and said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died for the glory of God. You know you're spirit-filled when you can surrender your life plan to God's ultimate plan. Now we're talking about being spirit-filled. So is Waters Church spirit-filled? Well, it depends. It really, it really does depend. It, it depends on are we facing and resisting temptation? Are we serving in the church? Are we bold in our presentation of the gospel? And are we ready to give up what we want for what he wants? Amen. Number three. The third sign of a good church gathering is a gathering where people are joyful, thankful, and helpful. Where people are joyful, thankful, and helpful. A good church has people full of joy. Glad to be here. That's what I love about you people. You're always glad to be here. I can sense it from the moment I walk in. There's just joy in this place. You know why there's joy? Because the gospel is preached. The gospel produces joy. Religion produces grief. Some of you are like here for the tourists. I thought this was a religious place. No. We're not here telling you how to get to God. We're telling you how God came to you. We're not telling you how to climb the ladder to heaven. We're trying to tell you about the one who climbed down the ladder into hell for you. We're, we're trying to tell you about the one who came to rescue you. We're trying to tell you the one who came to seek and save you. We're trying to tell you about the one who made you, formed you, and then laid down his life on a cross for you 2,000 years ago. That's not religion. And let me tell you as clear as I can, no other religious system has this 
message. It's the only one. It's the only one where it's about what God did and not what we do. Now that makes you joyful. That's why it says grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. And I don't know about you, and I do know about you. Everybody loves a gift. Everybody gets happy. You bought me a gift. Oh. Right? Gifts bring joy. Salvation is a gift. And salvation by grace produces joy in thankful people. So he says this in, in, in 19, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. You tell me i got to start singing around everybody? Like addressing each other? Like what are we supposed to do? Walk in and say, hello, how are you? God bless you. No. He's just talking about this should be the evidence of a joyful heart. You know people are joyful when they start singing. And then he says giving thanks always for everything. Giving thanks. Being thankful for what God has given us. And then submitting. Verse 21, submitting. That means I'm here. Now, now. I'm going to get into next week's message a little bit right now. The word submission, take it in two parts. Submission. Sub means to get under and mission. What's submission? Submission is to get under what God is doing in the church. You're saying, I'm going to put myself under the mission. How do you want me to help? How can I serve? How can I do something so that we can reach our community and change the city for Jesus? Got it? So here's the question. Are you serving and giving from a joyful heart because you know you've been changed by Jesus? In fact, it's so important, I want you to write it down. I am currently serving or helping my church, and hopefully both, to reach people on the weekend. Just answer that on your notes, and if you don't have yes for an answer, maybe just leave it blank, fold up your notes, and wait for the end of the service. Are you serving? Are you, here's, you know how you make a church less Joyful, can I tell you? Just become a taker. You want to rob the joy from your brother or sister in Christ? Just become a taker. It's the 20-80% uh, rule. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And when you have 20 people, 20% 20 of the people making up for 80% of people, it exhausts them. Some of you are not serving yet. You are exhausting your brother or sister. Same thing financially. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. Now we could bring up, and I could parade up here, people, one after another, after another, after another, who trust God with the tithe, who bring the tithe, the first tenth, to the house of God. One of them is me. I give the first tenth right to God. Not give, I bring, because it's not mine to give. It's his. I bring the tithe. And here's the hard facts that the church needs to hear. When you don't give, you're a taker. You're either a taker or you're a giver. And some of you are in that 80% group. And you get all the blessings of this place and you give nothing. Or you give a fiver to God. And if that's all you can afford, I get it, but many of you give $5 to God and then go down the street and buy a Dunkin' Donuts coffee for seven bucks. Or two for seven bucks. That means Dunkin' Donuts comes first. That's what that means. And America does not run on Dunkin'. America is running straight to hell. And it's the people who run with Jesus who won't join them there. We need America to run on Jesus. Somebody say amen right there. How do we do that? By giving and serving and saying, I will do my part. If you're sitting in a chair right now at Waters Church and the lights are on and the air conditioning is on and the sound is working and the kids are being served and, and there's coffee over there and everything's going on, I just want to let you know something. I just want, there's a roof over us right now, right? I just want to let you know. You may not have thought about this, but listen, if you're new, if you're here for the first time or just a couple months, someone paid for that before you got here. I know a lot of them. A lot of them are still here. But contrary to popular belief, a church is not visited by a semi-truck driven by an angel once a month who unloads magical money into the church. Some of you literally think that. Like, no. People gave their hard-earned money and said, you 
were worth it. They said, you were worth it. Now my question is, can you now be the generation who says, the people who come up after me, they're worth it. Can you give to life change? Can you serve to life change? If you're not serving, what Jesus are you following? Jesus said, Luke 22, 27, I'm among you as one who serves. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you should be a servant. If you're not serving, especially the body of Christ, what Jesus are you following? Because that's what he was. It was a servant. And the problem, I think, in American Christianity, the problem I really believe is that even in the church, we treat our sports heroes better than our Savior. I ran across this online, and I want to share it with you. It's a little meme. It's funny. And it says this, the 12 reasons why I as a pastor are no longer, am no longer going to attend sporting events. And these are the reasons that people give for no longer going to church. So substitute coach for pastor, and yada, yada, you get the idea. The coach never came to visit me. Bill Belichick, any, ever visit any of you? No, no. Still a fan? <gasps> How could you? Every time I went, they asked for money. Does anybody get into the stadium for free? Huh? Hmm? No. The people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. The seats were very hard. By the way, we've got softer seats here. Amen. <laughs> the referees made a decision I didn't agree with. I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. Some games went into overtime, like this message, like this one right here, message. Some games, and I was late getting home. The band played some songs I'd never heard before. The games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Since I read a book on sports, I feel I know more than the coaches anyway. Number 12, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. We'll never break those rules for sports. We'll break those rules for God all the time. And some of you got to get your heart right. You got to put God first. Because if you put God's, first, God's house first, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you bless his house, he will bless yours.